This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A week of glorious weather days. An expanded vaccine eligibility that includes all adult New Yorkers and a slightly late but remarkable state budget passage. You could say it's almost a typical spring in the capital region. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. And it was a timely budget, kind of. One of the women accusing Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment spoke to the Times Union this week. We'll learn more about her story. Governor, are you asserting that you did touch the person, but that you thought they, they wanted to be touched? We'll hear about the latest developments in a lawsuit against the Batavia ICE facility brought by civil rights activists trying to get detainees the coronavirus vaccine. There have been near weekly court hearings uh, for over this litigation, over this lawsuit. And senior arts and entertainment reporter Steve Barnes gives us the latest on the return of live performances to the Capital Region stages. If venues can't put asses in the seats, as they say in the industry, then they're not going to make any money. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Okay, let's join Times Union editor Casey Seiler for a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. Thanks, Casey, for joining us again here on The Eagle Podcast. We're going to go over the top headlines. Let's start with the New York State budget. I do want to mention, though, that if this were any other year besides this year or last year, so let's just say two years ago, like the state budget would have been the biggest story this week, right? Yeah, it usually is. At, you know, the first week in, a, in April, we're now a little bit past the first week. It was, it was a slightly late budget, you know, to use a word the governor has used before to describe the budgets when they're a little bit past the uh, the end of March deadline. It was a timely budget, kind of, but it did come very close to uh, to having major repercussions in terms of uh, delaying payments for state workers and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's a historic budget in any season. It's two hundred and twelve billion dollars, which is the biggest ever. Certainly, the biggest of uh, of Andrew Cuomo's uh, you know decade in office. And a, a couple of big things, historic boost in aid to education, which has been celebrated. It includes $750 million, if we're talking about local impacts, to rebuild and consolidate the Wadsworth Labs, which are you know, the state's essentially health healthcare labs. Um, of course, we've heard a lot about Wadsworth Labs in reference to, to COVID-19. 
these are basically the, the labs, which are rather far flung now, are going to be redone and consolidated out at the uh, Harriman campus on the east side, close by UAlbany. A contentious issue that cropped up in this year's budget was the establishment of a $2 billion uh, excluded workers fund that provides cash payments to undocumented immigrants who are shut out of other federal and state benefits, such as unemployment insurance or stimulus checks. The argument made by progressives, Jessica Ramos, who is a state senator from Queens, was the sponsor of this, this measure that was tucked into the budget, is that these people are essentially paying into the system through payroll taxes and other benefits that they are providing to our society, but they are shut out of the safety net that we provide to to other workers. Republicans obviously made a great deal of hay about it. Um, you know, New Yorkers are struggling and undocumented workers are going to uh, reap this benefit. But it's something that ended up being uh, backed by the governor and celebrated by him in his, uh, I hesitate to say, news conference because he really didn't take that many questions and they were all tightly controlled. But anyway. Well, we will have more on that later in this podcast when we talk to our Capitol Bureau chief, Brendan Lyons. Uh, But in the meantime, you did mention Wadsworth and the Harriman campus, but are there any other kind of boons that have come out of the state budget for uh, specifically for the Capitol region? Well, uh, the regional economic development councils got, um, uh, you know, a a new round of funding. Uh, There were those who suggested that perhaps the governor uh, now facing a super majority in both houses of the legislature might see that big pile of pork taken away or at least doled out in other ways. But that system will continue. There will be another REDC award show. Um, A lot of money that comes to projects around the capital region flows through that process. If you live up in Saratoga County, you can be glad that um, video lottery terminal aid, about $3 million of it going to Saratoga Springs and to Saratoga County was restored. That's a barrel of money that every year seems to be imperiled. And um, the city of Albany is happy because it will see a boost in aid that it receives. Of course, Mayor Kathy Sheehan, like Albany mayors since time immemorial, have argued that Albany does not get uh, commensurate uh, state aid, considering the fact that so much of the land within the environs of, of the city are you know, state-owned land and therefore not taxable for property taxes. All right. So the last topic I wanted to address today is a fun one. Uh, the Gilded Age TV series is filming in Troy this spring. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, HBO uh, series uh, co-created by Julian Fellows, who is probably best known. I think it's definitely best known for uh, creating Downton Abbey is doing this HBO series called The Gilded Age. Its production was delayed by um, the pandemic, as so many other productions were. But Ken Crow, who covers Rensselaer County for us, has been writing about how the production has been scouting locations, raiding local antique stores to get good props. Just in the last couple of days, we've seen uh, the word go forth that for four weeks in May or June, May and June, when they're going to be Um, filming in the capital region. They're looking for extras. And this comes with the very unique request to women who might be interested. And I quote here, are you okay with wearing a corset and bustle? 
which is something that I think it's fair to say most capital region women are not um, asked on a regular basis. Uh, they're <laughs> looking for women with long hair and men with facial hair, uh, which uh, based on the number of, of artisanal beer and other product businesses that have um, been set up in Troy is probably not going to be too hard to find. <laughs> Excellent. Now, of course, Troy has a long history, right, of, uh, of being the location for period pieces, right? I would say the Age of Innocence is probably the best known, but the far less <laughs> well-known and successful version of The Time Machine with Guy Pierce, I believe, filmed in both Albany's uh, Washington Park and in Troy. It's really exciting, and the show looks terrific. It's got a tremendous cast. Carrie Coon, who was in the Leftovers and uh, and Fargo on FX has a leading role, as does Cynthia Nixon, who of course is is probably as well known for running against uh, Governor Cuomo as she is for her acting accomplishments. It's going to be very exciting. And what better can you do than a show called The Gilded Age that is going to be filming in in spring? It just feels like things are uh, are kind of opening up again. That's an excellent way to end it. Thank you so much, Casey, for joining us. We'll check back in with you next week. Good talking to you. As always, you can read more about all of the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Multiple women have come forward to accuse Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment and other inappropriate conduct in the last few months. The most serious of these allegations comes from a staffer who says the embattled governor groped her at the governor's mansion after he summoned her on the pretext of work. Capitol Bureau Managing Editor Brendan Lyons recently spoke with this woman, whose identity the Times Union is withholding, to hear her story. I caught up with him afterward to find out more. This young woman is a single mom and has worked in the governor's office for uh, several years. In early March, we broke a story reporting that her allegations had been shared with a colleague in the office, and it was shared in the sense that she didn't file a report, she didn't file a complaint, she didn't tell anyone. She was watching the governor give a press conference where he was denying ever touching anyone inappropriately. I never touched anyone inappropriately. I never touched anyone inappropriately. During that missive, as she watched it in the office, she grew very emotional. And a colleague noticed that she was tearing up and came to her aid and asked her, hey, what happened here? You know, what's going on? And and she confided to this employee. And it seems like almost as if she was just telling her friend, you know, this is what happened. And, and, I've, and she had kept it inside and never told anyone. That resulted in the colleague several days later, realizing that she is a mandated reporter, and they are in state government, and she reported it to a, a council with the governor's office, and then it was off to the races. So we, we learned about the details of what had been relayed to the governor's office, reported that story, did not identify this woman because she's an alleged victim of sexual harassment or sexual abuse, possibly. And so we've respected her privacy, and I think that she appreciated that. Over the past several weeks, it's been a process of trying to get the confidence of her and, and her attorney to allow us to, to tell her story fully. 
it's certainly the most serious allegations that the governor has faced. There's no doubt about that. Certainly. Some of the details that are described in the article are, are quite graphic. This was not a hug or a kiss on the cheek. This, this was groping. And she said that, you know, after closing the door of his office at the mansion in November, that the governor came back to her a second time. And, you know, she was in shock, didn't realize what was happening, is, is very, you know, afraid of offending the governor. And, and um, because some people have asked that, well, why wouldn't you just slap him and say, you know, stop that. That's not appropriate. You know, these, these are people who are in fear for their careers. And it's not, I think, as easy as everyone may think in that situation to react the way you might think after the fact of, oh, I should have done this. You know, she described it that you're almost in shock. You don't know what's happening. But there were things about her narrative that really hit home with a lot of readers the fact that she remembers exactly what she was wearing and that she remembered looking down and seeing his hand, his big hand, as she described it, which was over her bra on her, you know, holding her breast. And that, you know, those are sort of images that you would expect are going to be burned into her for a long time. No doubt, no doubt. So you mentioned earlier when we were talking offline that you had spent about four hours talking to this woman to report this story. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? I needed to get to know this person. I needed to understand where they came from, how she came to work at the Capitol, you know, what she was like. You want to also assess the person in front of you and the, and the veracity of their statements. But it just became clear as she went through a timeline of her career and her interactions with the governor, you know, that they, they struck me as very vivid recollections of things, you know, things that the striking thing that she remembered was her first day when she joined state government and joined the governor's administration. She was not yet in the executive chamber. She wasn't part of the governor's inner circle staff. She was working for somebody who was assigned to, um, you know, like a transportation position. And so she was brought over to the executive chamber, the secure area of the governor. Uh, of his office staff and, and introduced to people on her first day. And she remembered a woman looking at her and looking at her appearance and saying, oh, he's going to steal you. You you wait and see. The governor's going to steal you. As she said to us, I know what that meant. That's a tough way to start your job. As she said, I've heard stories about what goes on at the Capitol. And, and to start your first day with somebody making a remark like that had to be a way to start your job on a bad foot. Now, of course, that sounds similar to some of the allegations that the other women who came forward made. Also, the concept of grooming. She believes that he had spent for about two years grooming her. What does that exactly mean for folks yeah, who so don't understand that? I think grooming, it, it, it's more a way to describe her description of how the governor became more bold. You know, that that it's it starts with subtle comments about appearances. Um, he will, you know, I, I can't imagine in any office setting these days where the person in charge has a, a young employee in front of them taking dictation. And then when the work is concluded, that the supervisor gets up and comes up from around his desk to hug the person and kiss them on the cheek. And the governor, according to him, and according to his attorney and, and the women who have experienced it, 
he explains it away by that's just his upbringing, that's his nature, it's his background, this is what we do, we kiss people, we hug people. But she described that over time, the hugs became tighter. You know, she felt him, it, it seemed, trying to pull her against him so that her breasts would be on him. And she remembered kind of pulling her pelvis away from him, thinking, I know, I know what he's doing. And it's a process where it's almost as if the person is testing the waters, you know, seeing if there's a response there. And I don't think that anyone would find that appropriate under at any level. You know, if the governor has someone on his staff that he feels he would like to have a relationship with, setting aside the appropriateness of that or not, you know, what about asking someone out to dinner, <laughs> you know, rather than, uh, as, as she described it, just going for it at the mansion on a work day when you're called there to assist him? Has the governor responded to these specific allegations at all? The governor in March issued a statement describing these allegations as gut-wrenching, and he said something to the effect that nothing like this ever happened. And I think that presumably might upset a woman who, who believes in, and asserts that it did in fact happen. I, had, I think that had to be upsetting. And then in the wake of our story of the details of her full allegations and her experience with the governor, his attorney, Rita Glavin, issued a statement in which she said, you know, the people of New York have known this governor for 40 years. He's been in the spotlight. Nothing like this has ever been alleged. And then, and then the wording gets very curious because he says he never touched anyone inappropriately. And he has made these sort of careful declarations that he's not saying he didn't hug someone or put his arms around them or any of this. He's just saying he never did it inappropriately. And so the implication is that, Governor, are you asserting that you did touch the person, but that you thought they they wanted to be touched? You know, that's that's those are the sorts of questions that I wish we could ask of him, but we never get picked when he selects his press questions. Sure. Now, what comes next? Obviously, there's ongoing investigations um, and the specific allegations of this, the woman that you featured in your story. I mean, what comes next for all of that? The attorney general's office, at the end of their investigation of these allegations, is expected to issue a report. That report could make or break Governor Cuomo. If that report comes out and walks the line and says that here's the allegations and we can't sustain or prove any of them, then he will try to hang in there through this term, I'm sure. If that report comes out and it is in any way able to say that we believe or conclude that these instances of sexual abuse or sexual harassment occurred, then I think it would be game over for, for most elected officials. Some people believe he should have already resigned because of the nature of, of what's unfolded in this country. As people, the accusations have been enough for calls for resignation, not waiting for someone to have you know justice and an investigation and go through the process. So he's asking for more than he's given others, including Eric Schneiderman. You know, the question is, what will that report say? And if it comes out and it breaks against the governor, I think that the pressure for him to step down will be enormous. 
For more on the ongoing investigations into sexual harassment claims against the governor, head over to our Capital Confidential blog at timesunion.com or listen to the Capital Confidential podcast wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, civil rights activists took ICE to court to get coronavirus vaccines for the detainees at a facility in western New York. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. A handful of detainees at a U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement facility in Batavia received a first dose of a coronavirus vaccine at the end of last month. They were among the first immigrants held in ICE-run facilities to get a vaccine. And that came about a month and a half after a COVID-19 outbreak hit the Buffalo Federal Detention Facility that sickened a majority of its inmates, according to court documents. At the start of that outbreak, the New York Civil Liberties Union and Prisoner Legal Services of New York sued the facility and ICE to provide vaccines to 85 medically at-risk detainees. Reporter Masara Makati has been following this story for more than a month, and I caught up with her to find out more. Tell us what happened, where we are now. There have been near weekly court hearings uh, for over this litigation, over this lawsuit. Essentially, it was ICE uh, playing hot potato and saying, well, you know, we don't have access to the vaccine. The vaccine is uh, it's very limited. Well, you guys should consider suing New York State or the Center for Disease Control instead because they have more control over the vaccine doses when in reality, there are other federal agencies that have been able to secure the vaccine, A, and B, the detainees are are the federal government's responsibility. They're not the state's responsibility. They're not local municipalities' responsibility. Some of the lawyers who were suing on behalf of the detainees pointed out that those who were incarcerated in local and state jails basically ICE detainees being held in local and state jails were being provided the vaccine when New York State opened up eligibility to those individuals incarcerated in in their jails and prisons. So had these Batavia detainees been held at a state or local jail instead, then they would have gotten the vaccine. So this was the federal agency's responsibility to provide those vaccines. Um, It was a lot of back and forth about, well, what can we logistically and realistically do here? The federal judge, Lawrence Villardo, was getting a little frustrated with how long it was taking, uh, for sure. 
but eventually he ordered, okay, Prisoner Legal Services of New York and New York Civil Liberties Union, which are the two civil rights organizations who were suing on behalf of the detainees, you guys try to make appointments for the detainees. Make appointments yourselves, you know, through the county health department, whatever it may be. If you can secure appointments for the detainees, and we here are talking about vulnerable detainees, so those who are considered to be at risk per CDC guidelines, then ICE, it's going to be your responsibility to transport the detainees to their vaccine appointments. He said that he would initially start, you guys can look in Western New York, uh, which would be closer to the facility. But if it doesn't seem to be possible, then he's going to open up to the entire state. So, you know, ICE may have to drive the detainees all the way out to Potsdam or Plattsburgh if they need to, just so that these detainees can get their vaccine. Luckily, it didn't need to get to that point. NYQU and PLSNY were able to secure appointments for eight of the 85 detainees at a local, you know, county health department. And they successfully got their vaccines on March 23rd. The last court hearing was last week. And I said that they were just going to keep up with this process to keep trying to get other immigrants detained at their facility uh, vaccinated. So now it's just the waiting game. Now, is there any precedent for this? Is this happening anywhere else, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, that's a great question, because as far as I know, it's not. The Washington Post actually wrote a story a few weeks ago about nationally all of these civil rights organizations and immigrant advocacy groups that were taking legal action against ICE detention facilities to try to secure vaccines for the detained immigrants at those facilities. As far as I know, looking at other reports, these would be the first ICE detainees detained at an ICE-run facility to get the vaccine. I asked ICE to confirm this. They didn't respond to that question. So it's yet to be confirmed by authorities. But as far as the civil rights organizations know, and as far as, you know, just looking at other reports, these seem to be the first ones to get the vaccine in the country. Now, are these civil rights organizations, specifically NYCLU and PLSNY, um, are they happy I would say it's definitely cautious optimism. I think that they're relieved that this finally started to work. I would project onto them maybe a little bit of frustration that they're the ones who had to secure the appointments instead of ICE because this is ICE's responsibility, not necessarily theirs legally. But I would say that they're definitely on watch. I mean, there was a court hearing last week and the judge proposed, you know, having a follow-up court hearing to see how the process is going in two weeks. And the PLSNY representative asked for one week instead because he wanted to be able to stay on top of it and keep holding ICE accountable. So I would say that it's definitely a cautious optimism. Starting last week, the state said arts and entertainment venues could rev up their live performance engines again after 13 months of near or total darkness. But we can't all run to the box office just yet. I checked in with senior arts and entertainment writer Steve Barnes about what we can all expect for live performances in the coming weeks and months. 
the last time I talked to you about entertainment-related topics, I think it was over the summer when we were talking about how um, one of the theater groups out in the Berkshires, or two of them actually, had started uh, dipping their toes into the live performance game in a COVID era. Um, but now things have changed. We've we've advanced, uh, you know, six or seven months here, and you know there are some state rules that are now in effect. So let's just start by saying, where are we now with live performances in the region? It all depends on which venue you're talking about, because yes, the state did say starting April second that uh, small to medium venues which is basically up to 2,500 people could have a third capacity, but maxing out at 100 people. Basically, you're maxing out at 100 unless you require everyone to have proof of a recent COVID test or a completed vaccination schedule, which means you could only rise to 150. So that's that, that's tough. Now, a place that's small, like Cafe Lena in Saratoga Springs, can, to use the very favorite word ever of the pandemic, pivot. Cafe Lena first pivoted on the very first weekend of the shutdown in March of 2020 and started doing live streams. They invited musicians in. They put, like, one guy behind the camera and one person at the soundboard. And then the musicians were six feet apart, and they live streamed for free. And for a year, they did more than 250 live streams only asking for a virtual tip bucket. And that virtual tip bucket brought in $100,000 that went straight to more than 600 musicians. Now, wow. Yeah, it was it was amazing that that was pretty extraordinary. And, and sometimes, you know, they were small, a dollar. And one time, one guy during a concert donated $10,000 and then panicked and quickly called the theater and admitted that he was too drunk to have donated $10,000 and could they please not run it on his credit card. So they gave, <laughs> they, gave, they gave it back to him. But then last weekend, because they're small and although they could have 33 in there since there are 100 seats, Cafe Lena decided they were only going to have 24. Some of them are on couches with little coffee tables. Some of them are regular little cafe tables uh, with chairs and they only have 24 people. And right away, that very first night, Friday and Saturday, they had concerts in the very first two concerts indoors before a ticketed audience in 13 months in the area had a grand total for two concerts of 48 people. All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Cafe Lena. <laughs> wow. But but even that in this era, like that is that is impressive. I, yeah, hey, they were able to do it. But the, if venues can't put asses in the seats, as they say in the industry, then they're not going to make any money. I mean, at 10% capacity, the TU Center is effectively closed because a band that could put 12,000 in there normally can now only put 1,200 in there, and it's not worth going out on the road to play a 1,200-seat venue. So they're working on it, and here's what we know. Saratoga Performing Arts Center has already told us they're going to do their chamber music festival outdoors on a nearby farm under... Uh, an open-air greenhouse with a covered with a covered top. So that's where chamber music is going to be. They're hoping, but don't know quite for sure, what to do with the ballet and the orchestra, which are which have residencies and have since 1966. Hope they're hoping, once formal guidance from the government comes out, that they can do selective seats within the amphitheater and then mark off areas on the lawn that are socially distanced where parties can buy blocks on the lawn. That's what they're hoping, but there's no guarantee. Jazz festival, same thing. 
Times Union Center, as I said, doesn't know what they can do because at the moment, 1,200 seats is not economically viable, but they've been told they'll be able to have 25% capacity for arena football when that starts in late May. The big news here that we hadn't reported, and this is in my story, uh, it's the cover of our preview section this week, it's, it's also online about area venues reopening, is that Proctors and Schenectady will have no Broadway musicals at all this year. Ouch. It's the core of the economics of Proctor's Collaborative, which also has, in addition to its main stage in Schenectady and its GE Theater in Schenectady, also has, among its affiliates, Universal Preservation Hall in Saratoga Springs and Capitol Repertory Theater in Albany. But what supports a lot of that entity is those touring Broadway musicals. But those are giant operations. They have large casts and bigger crews. It's dozens and dozens of people who come in and stay in hotels and are crammed in backstage. And even if you could separate the audience, what are you going to do about the people backstage and their equity members? And so all of that. So mounting a tour takes months. The logistics take months. Routing a tour around the various different state requirements, because they're different in Massachusetts, even in next door here in New York. So touring Broadway has basically said, we don't think we can come back until 2022. So Philip Morris the CEO of Proctor's told me flat out they will not have any Broadway tours at Proctor's this year. Wow. Personally, as a season ticket holder, that cuts me deep. But but more for, you know, the larger issue that it, you know, affects the local capital region economy. I mean, how are they going to ha- have they told you how they're going to survive, how they're going to make well, it up? Philip Morris just had a had a blog post that said Proctor's Collaborative lost twenty four million dollars in revenue from the pandemic. That is devastating. It it is. Now, fortunately, it's a giant organization with deep-pocketed donors who have been connected with it for 40 years. And Philip Morris is a a savvy savvy operator and knows how to... There's no way he fully offset that $24 but he was able to go after available money. Well, to say that this this entire scene that surrounds the arts, the performing arts, is is fraud is, is... basically an understatement at this point. I mean, we have some hope that things are coming back and that some venues have adapted and have managed to you know, survive financially. But as you said in your piece that you referenced, one of the really good points I thought you made was that it was one thing to just shut it all down. You know, it just took the stroke of a pen to shut it all down. But coming back is a monumental Herculean, I don't know, insert adjective here, uh, grandiose adjective here, undertaking. I mean, we're not going to get back to normal for a while, basically, is what you're what you're ultimately right. saying, right? right. We're, we're not going to get back to, to normal um, until at least winter 2022. It seems like such distant future. There is hope. Barrington Stage Company has announced that they are doing four inside shows uh, at a theater with reduced capacity. They've, re- they've removed alternating rows of seats. Uh, they're also going to have stuff outside. Shakespeare and Company has built a new outdoor theater, 500-seat outdoor theater on their campus in Lenox, Massachusetts, and they're bringing in the actor Christopher Lloyd. You know Christopher Lloyd? Great Scott. Doc Brown! King Lear! What? That's going to be so cool. Yes. Now, it's not going to be indoors, but Doc Brown is playing King Lear, so there we go. You know, just one more question to kind of round this out here. Um, some of the workarounds that you mentioned, like, you know, what Cafe Lino is doing with the live streams and, and some of the other things that performance art groups have been doing to survive the pandemic. Do you think some of those things will stick around? 
Yes. Uh, just like in, you know, in restaurants prior to the shutdown, they had never done uh, takeout cocktails. And an awful lot of them were, you know, fancier restaurants were really kind of snotty about takeout food. And now they're all for it. They're like, we are totally continuing takeout cocktails. We'll do takeout food as much as anybody wants it, even as we reopen, because they've recognized that it works. You know, Cafe Lena, they have been live streaming for years for people who couldn't get out, you know, they're, uh, until they had an elevator. Some of them were senior people, couldn't get upstairs, that sort of thing. You know, Playhouse Stage, Park Playhouse, uh, has their winter quarters at the Cohoes Music Hall. And they decided fairly quickly when it was clear that a fall to winter 2021 season was not possible, they brought their cast together, quarantined them, got them all tested, and then completely safely shot on the Cohoes Music Hall stage their productions and then edited them in, into video performances that they could then show to schools. Uh, and so I think these are the creative arts after all. You know, so creativity is built into their names and they have been so desperate to find ways to serve their audience and fulfill their missions and just do that. Be there connected with the people who have supported them all these years that that they're willing to do whatever it takes and be creative about it and find ways to entertain audiences who may not yet be willing to go back out. And so that they're going to continue to attract them for the next you know, six, eight months until we're at herd immunity and 90% completely vaccinated and capacity rules have re relaxed and theater companies are comfortable putting touring shows on the, on the road. And, and we, we will be there. I imagine we'll have another conversation in six months and say, are we there yet? And we'll say, no, let's talk again in February, 2022 and talk about how glorious it was to go see a grand musical at Proctor's. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. <laughs>